Hi, I'm Tiki Barber, co-founder of Thusio. Thanks for listening to the Thusio Live and Unfiltered podcast. We're bringing our past events back to life for you to enjoy. This episode features Yogi Roth's April 2019 conversation with former LA Laker and five-time NBA champion Derek Fisher. Fisher details his famous buzzer beater against the Spurs that changed his career, what it was like to play with Kobe Bryant, and he also reflects on some of the tough times at the end of his career. Enjoy the interview. I'm curious for you, your origin story, where did you begin to develop those character traits? Because you took them to the highest level in your respective sport. Oh, um, honestly, man, back to Little Rock. I mean, you, you know, you referenced uh, Arkansas Little Rock and the Trojans and, you know, my upbringing, family, uh, coaches, like literally a village um, of people that always at least tried to help me understand that anything that I ever wanted to accomplish, you know, on a high level had to include those ingredients. Um, I was, to no surprise today, I guess, I was never 6'6". I didn't shrink down to 6'1". Um, so I was never the tallest, the fastest, the most athletic, the, you know, the born-to-be superstar guy. So my my advantages were always going to be fighting harder than you, working harder than you, being in greater shape than you, um, being more mentally tuned in to the game plan, the X's and O's, like all of these other things that would even the plan feel for me because they actually were more talented and more skilled than I. So, um, so I think just as a, a young kid, like playing organized basketball, I never had the physical advantages, so you know the mental thing was my thing, and got a pretty big head, bro. I'm country. I'm from. I'm from the country, so it's real solid noggin up here. It's a lot of space, and uh, I try to use it. <laughs> How old were you when you recognized that your key ingredient was going to be your work ethic, your competitiveness? Was that an edge for you always, or did you have this moment of, oh boy, look out! I got something in my back pocket that you may not know about across from me. Um. Well, I think, I think there were these different moments. Uh, I, I think I always had a feel for the game. Like, we, you know, we, in my house, like, we grew up watching basketball. Um, my parents played when they were younger. My older half-brother, uh, he played in college, got second round, drafted in the NBA. Like, we, so we were a basketball family. So I had a feel for the game. But there were, like, these different moments where I had – real like hard choices to make about how good I wanted to be at it and um, you know what's now called club team basketball when I was younger it was called AAU basketball still exists but the club team thing is like taking over what AAU basketball used to be we didn't play every weekend and you know a lot of parents sitting here paying you know $180 for every weekend for every tournament 52 weekends a year that's not how it the concept was for us growing up we we played for our school team during the school year and then in the spring and summer we played for our club team AAU team and then we went back to our school team so 11 12 13 14 you know I was a starter you know playing minutes and then at the age of 
15 turning 16, we're at an AU tournament, and the kids that were like similar in height to me at 12 and 13, 14, were all of a sudden like up here, and I was still down here. And so after starting for the first four years for this program that I played in, we um, we had come in second in the nation, third in the nation, had never actually won the national championship. So 16 years old, 1990, national tournaments in San Antonio, Texas. And which is crazy to think that 14 years later. We'll get there, um, <laughs> don't worry. Like, but so I, I played zero minutes in the national championship game of the AAU national tournament, zero. I was still wildly ecstatic that we won a national championship because we had come so close and not actually made it. And um, I remember getting back to Little Rock and like at age 16, like literally having to ask myself, okay, bro, like <laughs> what are you gonna do here? Because clearly if the coach is not comfortable enough or doesn't trust you enough to have you out there in the championship game, that's more me than him, right? So at 16, I had to really decide like, all right, I gotta, I gotta get really serious about this. And I felt like that summer, there was like a, a shift in my work ethic and how many hours I was putting in and just the way I approached everything. Not that I wasn't serious before. I've always kind of had that serious like leadership type thing. But after that feedback of like, you were not good enough to for the coach to feel like he could put you in that game. He felt more comfortable putting him in than you. I, I didn't feel comfortable with that, so I just, I had to do something about it. So within that, at 16, you come home and you're like, okay, man, what's up? Like, why didn't I play in the Natty? To the work that got you a scholarship in the Sunbelt Conference, were you ever thinking the NBA? Or were you thinking, can I utilize basketball to get me an education? Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah, no, that, the NBA was so far from my thinking. Like, growing up in Little Rock, the closest professional sports team was probably the Dallas Cowboys or, you know, maybe St. Louis Cardinals or, you know, definitely not in Little Rock. <laughs> um, so the collegiate athletes were like the pinnacle, you know, of like athletic performance. So I grew up watching the Razorbacks of Arkansas play basketball and football. So I wanted to be like those guys. And... And so, and in the South, like, I don't, I don't think it's still that way because social media and like Tinder and all of these different things, like they've completely changed the game for young college graduates. Um, because when I was 21, 22, you go to college, graduate college, you get a job, you meet a nice girl, you get married, you start a family, the end. Like in, in, in Arkansas, that's what you were supposed to do. Not not literally the end, ladies. I'm sorry, that was not that was not what I meant to imply. Is that life is over 
when you, the end of one chapter, yeah, beginning nah, of another one. That's not what I meant at all. Um, so, so especially and my dad had like, I don't want to say literally beat this into my head, but close enough. <laughs> um, like that was the plan, right? Use the basketball athletic scholarship to get a good education, to get a college degree, meet some cool people, get a good job. That's the life. So when I went to Little Rock, I, I wasn't thinking about the NBA. Like, it, it, I mean, two things happened. One, uh, the coach that I originally went to play for, the head coach, um, we played a really, like, terrible style of play, really slow. Um, he, he was a madman, like, just off the charts, kind of crazy. And we, by the time my sophomore year came around, we actually, like, and this is a true story, we, as a team, we decided to boycott going to practice one day. It was that bad in terms of how he spoke to us, how he talked to us, how he treated us. We, had, we did not want to play basketball for this person anymore. So here I am, sophomore in college. We boycott practice. We're clueless, right? Where do you think we went when we decided not to show up to the gym and practice that day? We went to the mall like most high school or college kids would do. Like that's the, that's the place where you feel most comfortable when you're not where you're supposed to be. <laughs> I'm at the mall. And so we're at the mall and the coach's wife and daughter <laughs> are walking down the mall. <laughs> and she's looking at her like, aren't you guys supposed to be at practice? Like, so that didn't work. Like we didn't, you know, we weren't able to hide the fact that we weren't at practice. So later that evening, I'm 19 years old, I'm a sophomore, but I'd already kind of become the leader of this team. The athletic director, the assistant athletic director, show up to my dorm to sit down and have a conversation about what's going on with the team, the state of the team, you know, what are the concerns, what's going on? So here I am like already experiencing these things from like a leadership position that played into feeling a level of like comfort and confidence in those leadership moments as a professional. I didn't know that then. Um, so we just, you know, we had a conversation and we said, look, man, we, we don't want to play for this guy again. We, we had like the biggest game of the year coming up on Saturday. We were like, look, if he's coaching, we're not playing. That's how everybody feels. I, it's nothing I can do. We got to do something about it. So they decided to put him under review, not fire him. And at the end of the season, they reevaluate his job, whatever, whatever. We lose the next four games. He tries to be a nice guy during this probational period. And then after we lose four games, he's like, all right, you sons of it. We're going to go back to doing things my way around here. I've been trying to be nice to you guys. So the rest of the year is terrible. We lose. He gets fired. Wimp Sanderson, who had coached at the University of Alabama for a long time, coached uh, Robert Ory in college. He coached Derek McKee, James Hollywood Robinson, 
Latrell Sprewell, number of professional players. So he comes and takes the job at our school, which changes the profile of the program. We also had a couple players come and transfer to Little Rock when he came to take the job. So like the type of things that start to happen that end up leading to then the coach that coached a lot of NBA players is now coaching me so that then when he calls NBA scouts to say, look, I got a decent little guard down here in Little Rock. You should come check him out. There's actually credibility to that. I was working out one day in the summer, new guy that transferred. He's working out on the other end of the court. We don't know each other. We're kind of doing like this standoff, like, you know, I don't know you. You don't know me. We're on the same team, but like who's going to blink first kind of thing. So we end up kind of coming together and talking. And the first thing he says is, are you trying to go to the show? Okay, well, are you talking about the movies? <laughs> are you talking about the matinee? What show are you speaking of? And how old are you? At this point, I'm 19. And I'm like, what show are you referencing? It's like, <laughs> what you mean, the NBA, like the show? Honestly, man, I hadn't really thought, you know, that much about it, but I mean, maybe, sure, why not? And that, so that, w that was like one of those moments where like kind of a seed got planted and okay, well maybe, maybe I could try to do it and there look, here we are. And there you were, the 24th <laughs> pick right here by the Lakers in 1996. When that happened, what was the conversation with your dad like? We were thankful. Uh, because we we didn't see it coming really and there was another guy in the draft that year whose name was also Derek but his last name was Batty so when Commissioner David Stern gets up and he's like with the 24th pick in the 1996 NBA draft the Los Angeles Lakers select Derek and there's like a split second <laughs> pause of like okay which one and mind you, in my opinion, the worst, like when all the guys go through the pre-draft workout process, they go work out at different teams that are going to be within the range of where they might get drafted. So for me, I was from late first round to second round to maybe out. So I had to work out for like 15 different teams because I didn't know which range I would be in. By the time I showed up to L.A. to work out for the Lakers, I had been to Orlando, Denver, Philadelphia, Detroit, <laughs> everywhere, and then I got to L.A. on Friday. I get off the plane. We go to the Inglewood YMCA. It's like peanut shavings and dust, like two inches thick on the floor. And I f was slipping and sliding, and they're asking me to, okay, dribble between your legs, change direction. Well, I have no traction on my shoes. I can't stop. I'm not making any shots. And I left thinking that was the worst workout of all of the workouts I've had. There's no way I was expecting the Lakers to still draft me at that point. I was like, yeah, no, nah, they, they checked me off the list because <laughs> that wasn't good. So when he was like, Derek... And then every, it's a blur after that. Like, I, like, I can't tell you how many tears. <laughs> wow. It was unbelievable. Um, 
moment. I'm curious around Phil Jackson, because he said about you that you were the spokesman for the Lakers regarding leadership. Curious why, and did you even agree with him when he said that? And if so, when did you feel that? Because with the alpha personalities in that locker room, within that organization, the walls and the rafters of that arena, I got to imagine feeling as though you're the leader of that team might feel a little bit big for somebody who at 16 wasn't even playing in the state championship. For me, it's always about just like the game. And, and I think that my teammates always, like I wasn't controlling those guys and tell, like I play with the smartest, greatest basketball players to ever play. Like they didn't need me to tell them what to do. Like the game of basketball was always what I was most committed to, my love for it. Right. And I think that my teammates always knew that when I was telling them something or getting on them, like I was I was in Atlanta last night doing uh, NBA TV and they filmed inside the NBA for TNT in the next studio over. So in between commercial breaks and halftime and all of that, Shaq and I get to catch up in the back. So even last night, he's telling all of these amazing stories about the things that I used to say to him when he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do, <laughs> especially in certain cities. <laughs> so, 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 and I, I just think that they were willing to receive the message because they knew that there were no ulterior motives or any other reasons why I was saying what I was saying other than like, that's what we're supposed to be doing if it's about winning the game. Four tenths remaining in the fifth game. Here they go. They get it to Fisher. <laughs> There's moments in sports we just remember where we are when certain things happen. Yeah. I, I'm, I know you get asked about that all the time. I want to know, because there were three timeouts yeah. before that play. So does the play change? Like, is Kobe going to get it? Are you always going to get it? What happens to set up what might be one of the greatest moments in your career, let alone sports in general? Well, not breaking news. I'm never supposed to get it when Kobe and Shaq are on the floor. <laughs> Free timeouts. You know, maybe they change it up. That is, that is it's never supposed to go to me in those situations. Um, yeah, no, nah, three, the three timeouts, yeah, it was, it was crazy, right? So Duncan makes the shot. That's probably the best defense that Shaq has ever played in his life. <laughs> and Duncan still makes the shot. So that's discouraging, right? And uh, so we go, you know, first timeout, we go out. You know, I think the Spurs call a timeout. We go back out. Then Phil calls a timeout. So, you know, and the whole time, you know, we're stunned, first of all. It was probably the, I don't, it might be one of the lowest scoring games in NBA playoff history. I think the final score was 73 to 72. At one point, I think we were ahead 71 to 57. That's a lot. So we're stunned that we're even in a position where now we're behind in a game that we were in full control of at one point. So for me, I was not sitting there during these three timeouts thinking 
we have no shot to win this game because I have been in this situation before where we won a game with 0.2 seconds left. I had no idea that that was going to take place, you know, but it did. So in that moment, like I said, I'm never the first, second, or third option, actually, on because you had Shaq, you had Kobe, you had Karl Malone, three of the greatest players to ever play. They, it's for them. So Shaq spins around for a lob to the front of the rim. That's not open. Kobe goes towards half court. And Robert Ory, who obviously had played with us for many years before that, he knows wherever Kobe is, somebody has to go to him because he could mess around and catch it at half court and, and still make the shot. So Robert takes off to go double team Kobe. And it literally just left a vacuum right in front of me, wide open. And if you see the clip, I'm just standing there. I'm like, well, it's not coming to me. <laughs> so, you know, Shaq went that way. Kobe went that way. It, all these guys are scrambling around, and I'm just standing there. And then it, it was like a, it was like a, literally a bowling alley, just vacuum of space that's right there. Well, I might as well just go, go right there. It's open. So I take off and. Gary Payton's taking the ball out of bounds. And a lot of dudes, I'm telling you, like, when you watch sports, like, a lot of times when they get a five-second count or, like, something ridiculous happens and they didn't get it in bounds, it's because they had predetermined who they were supposed to be throwing it to. And in a lot of those situations, when you play with Kobe, you play with Shaq, you be like, those guys are, like, promised to kill you, essentially. If they don't get the ball in those situations, that's what they get paid to do. That's why they are the greatest of all time. So it takes a lot of courage to not try to still force it to Shaq or still somehow try to squeeze it to Kobe or Karl Malone and throw the ball to Derek Fisher. <laughs> like, <laughs> so Gary trusts me enough to still make the pass. And at that point, there was not a lot for me to think about other than I knew I had to turn, catch, and release all in one motion. I knew it couldn't be three different motions because I wouldn't have enough time to get it off. That was a beautiful moment. <laughs> all right. I, I want to I get in three quick ones before we let you go. That moment, we all remember probably where we were. Another moment, I remember where I was, and I would imagine a lot of you did as well. And this was in Salt Lake City. You hadn't touched a ball for four days. Your daughter was going through a surgery that the public didn't know about at the time. This city of Los Angeles is very familiar with this, with your story, with Jake Olson at USC, the long snapper who's just finished his career, retinoblastoma. What was that moment like for when you walked back onto the floor? You described it as walking through the pearly gates, and then you hit another clutch shot. Sports are one thing, but when it comes to real life, intermingled with sports, that humanity, I think there's magic there, and, and you live that. Yeah. Um, when people ask me the, about the biggest shots of my career, point four normally is the one that everybody assumes is the favorite one. And I think the one in 07 in Salt Lake City is my favorite one because of the the impact that it went on to have. Um, 
you know, which I'll get to, the, the experience was, you know, out of body, so to speak. Um, I really had no idea how I even got to the arena, to be honest, because we um, we had surgery in New York earlier in the day. And the plan was, you know, after, after she um, was recovery and release from the hospital that we were going to fly back to Salt Lake City anyway uh, because everything that could be done had been done and we were just going to get on the plane, go back and hope that the surgery worked, which we would find out in a few weeks later. So I hadn't planned on playing in the game that night. I, we were just getting back to, um, to Salt Lake City and um, and the team didn't know if I planned on playing, but they they still wanted to make sure that you know if I was going to come over to the arena, that every anything that the family needed or that I needed, they were they were all set to go. So when we landed in Salt Lake City, um, they had a you know police escort was there. Uh, one of the uh, team staff members for the Jazz was there, and they were like, "Look, you know, are you guys okay? You need anything?" are you coming to the arena or are you guys going to go home? Darren Williams, who was our starting point guard, was he, he, he was basically in foul trouble. He had like three fouls or four fouls in the third quarter. Our, the backup point guard, because I wasn't there that night, um, he had suffered a neck injury and had been taken to the hospital. So staff guy was like, no pressure here at all, but <laughs> if you are going to work, like we gotta go because <laughs> we really kind of need you. So, and the men here can definitely relate to this, right? How in the hell are you supposed to go talk to your wife about going to work <laughs> in this situation? And so, for whatever reason, uh, I posed the question. Um, and, you know, she was like, look, we're, there's nothing that you can do by just riding home with us. Like, we're going to be safe. You know, we got family. People are going to take, take them home. We're going to get some rest. Go to work. So we're flying through Salt Lake City. It's like 10 minutes to the airport. Walk in the arena. Haven't touched the basketball. I don't know why, like why this was such big news that I, you know, I wasn't there. So the cameras are like immediately in my face when I'm walking in. So I go to the locker room, do like three minutes of like push-ups and whatever, and like sit-ups, throw my my um, my jersey on. And you know, in the playoffs, like the teams put out the T-shirts on the seats, and it's like one night it could be white, it could be gold. So as I'm walking out of the tunnel. And, and, and start to exit the tunnel into the arena, I'm talking literally it looked like a sky of blue everywhere, which is where the kind of the pearly gates reference kind of comes from. And I'm walking in and I kind of I have a basketball in my hand, but I'm like, I'm stunned just kind of looking around like, is this real? Because I'm just, I'm just going through the motions at this point. Like I'm, my body's there, but my brain is not processing everything. So 
as I'm walking out, like some of my teammates are greeting me and, and I'm saying hello to them. And before I even can get to a seat to sit down, Jerry Sloan's like, fish, go in the game. <laughs> and I'm like, which ultimately was probably the best thing that could have happened because I had I sat down and started to think about what all was taking place and where I really felt, you know, emotionally, et cetera, like, I probably would have gone back in the locker room. <laughs> and, and so it just, it was a, an amazing night. So I hit the shot. We win in overtime. The post-game interview normally goes to the guy with the biggest stats or that scored the most touchdowns or the most yards or scored the most points or whatever. I scored five points, right? Why, like literally, why is the post-game interview for me? I'm confused. Uh, Pam Oliver, uh, who works with Fox Sports now, uh, I think the game was on TBS or TNT or whatever. So we get into this interview, and um, she asked me, like, you know, what's going on? You know, obviously we don't know the story, but, you know, you were away dealing just with some personal stuff. And as a family, we had agreed not to share anything because you know, there are certain things you don't want to share until you know for sure, like, good or bad. But something in me just, like, led me to say, this is what's been going on. And the only reason I'm saying this is because there are kids and families at home right now who are noticing that there might be something a little off with your kid's eyesight or the way that you can tell that something's off and you're not trusting your instincts to just like, go take them to the doctor, go make sure everything is cool. Like, because had we not done that, we could have lost our daughter. And so the reason why this shot for me is number one is because that interview led to hundreds of articles around the world that then led to more doctors in other countries sending kids to New York to see the doctor that we saw. So my daughter's story and like me scoring five points that led to the interview that led to like now thousands of children whose eyes and lives have been saved because of that, like that moment. That's why for me, that's my favorite shot because of the impact it had on so many other like families and people like and and doctors like are just a doctor like made a joke about <laughs> he's like you know so you you know that like your daughter's story and you being like the basketball player that people read about and heard about has done more for medical research with this particular disease than any scientific journal we've ever published on, on it, like, and which then goes to just like the impact of sports and why it's so special to us and why we sometimes maybe too much expectations for our stars and our athletes, but at the same time, it's because we we can be so impactful 
that we should be. Um, and it doesn't mean that we're perfect, but when we are aware and connected, like we, we can be impactful. So it was a special night for sure. It was indeed, and Tatum's doing well. Yeah, she is doing, she's a 12-year-old little girl, like so. You would, yeah, you wouldn't even know that <laughs> she, she has 50% vision in her left eye. She's 20-20 in the right eye. And um, she's turning 13 in a couple months, and she's definitely on the teenage girl stuff right now. <laughs> like, it is. You're now the head coach of the LA Sparks. Yeah, man. Yeah. Exciting. Here we are. Yeah. The next venture. I read a great article about you earlier about when it ended at the Knicks. You had to deal with other people's expectations about you and let them go and then get back to what your core was as a coach. Yeah. So for all the fans out here, what's your core as a coach here in this opportunity, in this city, with this storied franchise in the WNBA? We're all human, and um, and none of us are perfect. And, and I think that for me personally – you know, I'm, I'm, I try to be, I don't want to say perfect, but I, I, I try to do things a very, like, specific way. And going back to, like I said, when I was younger, like, for me, thinking my way through the game was always my advantage. And, but I've also always put everybody else before me. And so after being fired in New York, and kind of like, at the, so going through being fired from a job publicly, still not having fully gone through the transition of not being a player and athlete anymore, which a lot of guys struggle with, um, also went through that. I'd also been recently divorced right before that. So there was like divorce, <laughs> co-parenting, fired from your job, no longer playing in the NBA, that all just kind of hit me at the same time. And so it really, like, it took being fired from the job to move back to LA and, like, literally start to just let go of these expectations of what you used to be when you played, uh, what people thought you should have been doing when you were coaching in New York, um, you know, what your ex wife thinks you should be doing, and to, like, you know, on the airplane when they say, okay, in the event that there is turbulence, put your mask on first before you assist others. And I had lost the art of putting my mask on first because it always has been about the team and my teammates and what he needs and what she needs and what my wife needs and what my kids need and what they need at work. And, what, and, and I, there was significant parts of me that were just empty from giving myself away to everything and everybody else. And so not having those things, not having a job, not playing for the, the NBA anymore, not having a wife anymore, that forced me in very tough times to like, it's just you now, bro. Like you have to, just like when I was 16, like now I have to ask myself some questions about where do I want to go with this? Where's my life going? What's meaningful to me? What is my purpose, et cetera? Things that I could skip over 
when on Tuesday all I had to think about was playing against the Thunder and then Thursday the Knicks and then Saturday this and then got to practice. There was always these distractions and things that could pull away from being centered and, and thinking about what, what I need. So now when I think about you know, having the opportunity to coach and lead and teach again, you know, it's it's reminding all of our players that, like, first of all, they're like they're the greatest basketball players and athletes in the world, regardless of gender. And as much as I'm going to ask of you and demand of you at times to give yourself to the group and give yourself to the team, the only way you can really do that. Um, is to be on a very specific and intentional journey uh, of of like self empowerment and self love, you know what I mean, and self respect. Because if if you're not whole and you're not strong and you're not operating at the highest um, spaces of being a woman and feeling good about who you are and feeling valued and appreciated, then you can't give yourself to the team in the full way. So to me, that's the focus is, is helping. Like, of course, it's about the team and we want to win it. But within a team, the individual members have to be operating at their optimal level. Otherwise, the team can't operate at its highest levels. Before we let you go, we've talked about being raised by a village. Yeah. Talked about being 16 and looking yourself in the mirror. Talked about that moment where you learned about what the NBA was and how there was a word you never heard of when they talked about, do you want to go to the show? Clearly, you're 18 years, huge moments. What do you know for sure? That's the end of the question right there. <laughs> that was nice. That was a good setup, Yogi. I was waiting for the rest, too, like... That's it, bro. That's it. What do you know for sure? That I'm imperfect, and that's okay. Mm. You know what I'm saying? That, like, it's okay that I've never, you know, that I'm not these things or that everything hasn't gone right, um, that my marriage didn't work out. Um, like, all of the things that didn't, ha like, it's okay, actually. And, like, and I can still feel good about who I am. Like that's hard, and it and I've had to work at that and accept the fact that it is okay for those things to have happened, but that that doesn't that doesn't diminish who you are, right? It doesn't mean that you're not good enough or worthy enough or um, or that you can't be appreciated or loved or valued because you are imperfect. For me, at least personally, becoming more accepting of that um, has been a, a journey. And so I know that for sure, and that that's not going to change because I'm going to, and now a new coaching opportunity, it's not going to go perfectly. And three years, I mean, three years ago, when Luke Walton got hired by the Lakers, never could have imagined he'd be coaching in Sacramento now. But that's okay. Because there's whatever his life journey is, the good things and bad things that have to happen in his life to lead to the places where he's supposed to be, where he's destined to be, you have to go through the imperfections. And um, 
And I'm just at a place where I'm okay with that, that I, that I can make a mistake, that I, that I cannot do something that everybody else may approve of, but that I, I know that I'm making my best effort, that I know I'm living in my space to the best of my ability, and that's the only part that I can control. I can't control your perception, your anybody else's feelings about me. Now, I, I've, I've been, I've, I can drop that now and leave it where it is and just focus on the things that I can control, and that's it. That's all I know. Derek, we've all seen you make huge shots. I think we all got to see a glimpse of you that no one has really seen tonight. Thank you for the time. Thank you all. Appreciate it, man. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Thuzio Live and Unfiltered podcast with our guest, Derek Fisher. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like information on how you can attend our live events or book our new virtual ones, visit www.thuzio.com. That's T-H-U-Z-I-O.com. Oh, and make sure you follow us on social media at Thuzio.